Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine something with me, and I know some of you are too cool to do that, and too sophisticated, and too successful, and, and, and when somebody asks you to do something, it makes you not want to do something, but, but just set all that aside for just a moment, and, and just imagine something. Imagine that all of our local hospitals just this past week released a press release, and in light of everything that's going on in our communities and state and the world, just imagine, just imagine that they released this statement. We are no longer admitting sick patients, but from this point forward, we will only admit patients who are completely healthy. I know it's silly, it's absurd, it's, it's preposterous, but just imagine with me. I mean, imagine how crazy that would be. Let me give you something else to imagine. Imagine that all the local mechanics and all the local mechanic shops, they, they got together and they collectively decided, uh, we're, we're gonna put something on Facebook so that everybody knows, and, and they put this on Facebook. Uh, we will no longer offer services to vehicles that have issues and problems. In the future, we will only offer services to vehicles that have no issues or problems. And it's like, this is the silliest introduction to anything you've ever done because it's just absolutely asinine. Well, okay, well, let's go for three. Imagine something else with me. Imagine, imagine all of our local drug rehabilitation centers uh, got together and they started advertising, you know, a, a brand new, you know, business model, a brand new approach to what they do. And, and they, they said something like this. We will no longer be opening our doors to those who suffer with struggles and addictions. We will only open our doors to those without struggles and addictions. And again, it's crazy. It's absurd. It's, it's far-fetched. Uh, it's something so crazy, it's actually beyond believable. I mean, who would ever do something like that? It, it would just be crazy for us to think about it. it. It would be unimaginable that anybody could actually abandon their mission quite like that. It, it would be absolutely unthinkable for us that anybody would drift from their purpose quite like that. And it would be inconceivable that anyone would forget who they are and why they exist to this degree. Because who's ever heard of a hospital that doesn't open their doors to sick people and who've ever heard mechanics that only work on cars without issues and problems and who's ever heard of a drug rehab facility only opening their doors to people without struggles and addictions. It would just be so crazy, it's beyond believable because who would drift from their purpose like that? Who would abandon their mission like that? Yet you know who does that all the time? Just that thing, Christians and churches. Christians and churches, me, you, we, we all have a tendency to abandon our mission. Uh, we all have a bit of a propensity to drift away from our purpose and to forget who we are and why we exist. It just kind of happens. It, it's happened in your life, it's happened in my life, it happens in churches quite a bit. And such a thing that Christians and churches would drift from their mission or abandon their purpose or forget who they are and why they exist, such a thing should be inconceivable to us, it should be unthinkable, it should be unimaginable. It, it should be beyond believable that Christians and Christians could do such a thing, like that craziness about the hospital and the mechanics and the drug rehab facilities. Yet we know that this kind of thing happens all the time and, and there's a cost to that, there's a consequence of that. Because when churches abandon their mission, drift from their purpose and forget who they are and why they exist, the future of faith itself is put at risk. When we abandon, either individually or as a church collectively, whether this church, another church, all churches, some churches, when churches abandon their mission, drift from their purpose and forget who they are and why they exist, the future of faith itself is put at risk. 
And if this is what's going on in America, if this is what's going on in communities throughout this state, perhaps this helps explain why the numbers of Christians walking away from the church and walking away from faith are in record numbers once again. If this is happening, perhaps that helps explain the dwindling numbers of Christians year after year after year after year after year in this nation. If this is what's going on, then maybe that helps explain why since March of 2020, a third, 33% of the American church has disappeared. They're not to be found. They're not attending a local church. They're not watching online. They're not engaged. But 30 plus percent, a third of the American church has disappeared in the last 18 or so months. And maybe this helps explain it. The state of things, the state of our world, the state of our communities, the state of things is a painful reminder that whenever you or I or we as a church, whenever we step away from purpose, it's actually a step towards irrelevance. Whenever you step away from purpose, you are stepping towards irrelevance because when you lose your purpose, you waste your influence and you forfeit your opportunity to make a difference. That's what happens every single time. It it happens for individual Christians. It happens for couples who are Christians who forget, for families who forget, for churches that forget, that whenever we walk away from purpose, when we drift away from mission, we waste our influence and we forfeit the opportunity that we have to make a difference. And when you lose your purpose, and when a church loses its purpose, it's only a matter of time before we or that church loses its way. Because when you lose your purpose, eventually you will lose your way. And so it seems, I imagine, I I don't know, I'm just an onlooker like everybody else, but I have my suspicions that this is what's going on in America and this is what has been going on in America, that we have abandoned mission in so many churches. We have drifted from purpose in so many churches and we have forgotten who we are and why we exist in so many churches. Somewhere along the way, we got sidetracked, we got distracted, we, we drifted away. But here's the thing, I got up today and I came here to tell you, I don't want that to happen here at the Creed Church. Not now, not ever. I don't want us ever to abandon our mission. I don't want us ever to drift from our purpose and I don't want us ever to forget who we are or why we exist. I don't want us to forget it in London or Middlesbrough or Williamsburg or Somerset or anywhere in between. I don't want you to abandon your mission or drift from your purpose as an individual, as a follower of Jesus. And I don't want us to do it it collectively as a church. I don't want that to happen. Not now, not ever. Because the faith of this generation is too important for us to abandon mission or drift from purpose. The faith of the next generation is too important for us to drift away from purpose. Now, if we get this right though as a church and if we continue to get it right, because I think, you know, sometimes we don't always get it right, but I think, you know, God's really honored our efforts to try to get it right over the past decade and a half. But if we get this right, if we continue to get this right, two things are gonna happen and you can mark it down. Two things are gonna happen. It won't be easy and it will get messy. It won't be easy and it will get messy. Because if we get this right, it may cost us. It may cost us some popularity. It may cost us some popularity with some other Christians, some other Christians in our community, some other Christians in our state, some other Christians in our world. It it may cost us a little bit of our reputation. Our reputations may get dinged a little bit. We may get misrepresented. We may be misunderstood. And if we get this right, I have my suspicions and and I think I'm right. If we get this right, there's gonna be some people, there'll be some Christians that will stand up and say, hey, you're doing it wrong. If we get this right, if we stay on mission, if we stay anchored to our purpose, there there will be some, some circles that just stand up and say, hey, 
Now you, you've abandoned things. You've walked away. You're, you're off in the left field. You, you're not doing this right. You, you may even be doing the kingdom harm rather than good. Say, so well, how do you know that those kinds of things will happen when we get it right? Because <laughs> they have happened before. And they will continue to happen. But more than that, it's what happened with Jesus. Now, when Jesus showed up, there, there was a lot of things that Jesus did and a lot of things that Jesus said. And everybody was trying to figure out who is Jesus because that's the most important question in all of the world. You know, who is Jesus? And, and if you only wrestle with one question your entire life, you need to decide who is Jesus. But when Jesus showed up and, and he stepped onto the pages of history, you know, everybody was trying to figure out who he was. And so they would watch what he did and they would listen to what he said and they would be trying to figure out who he was. And, and oftentimes Jesus would say things and nobody really had no, you know, they didn't have a really good idea of what he was actually trying to say. And, you know, he'd speak in parables and he would tell stories about seeds and weeds and yeast and a buried treasure in a man's bosom or something like that. And people are taking notes. And they're like, well, I don't, I don't understand any of this. And, you know, and then he'll get up and talk about drink my blood and eat my flesh. And like, are we supposed to write that down? Is that like the action point today? You know, and so people sometimes didn't know what Jesus meant by what he said. But there was one thing that Jesus consistently talked about that everybody understood with crystal clear clarity what Jesus was saying and what he meant by what he said. And it's when he talked about his purpose. It's when he talked about his mission of why he had come into the world. And this is, this is Jesus' own, own words talking about his mission. This is what he said in the gospel of Luke. He said, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The son of man has come to seek and to save, talk to me, the lost. In other words, Jesus said, if you wanna know why I'm here, if you wanna know what I'm about, if you wanna know what's most important to me, it's this right here. I've come to seek and to save the lost. That's, this is the most important thing to me. And lost, this word lost, you see it right there? Lost, that's Jesus's adjective to describe the people who are far from God. Now, we all grew up in churches that had adjectives for people who were far from God. And sometimes, you know, people would use the word, you know, abomination. Sometimes you're a reprobate. You know, sometimes you're just, you're, you're a problem. You're a nuisance. You know, you're a curse. You're a plague. You know, all these different things. But this was Jesus's adjective for people who were far from God. This is how he thought of people who were far from God. He saw them as people or as persons who had wandered away and lost their way and lost their way to the extent that they could not find their way back home. That's how Jesus saw people who were far from God. That's how Jesus saw people who weren't good at being good. That's how Jesus saw people whose lives were a mess. He saw them as people who had wandered away, lost their way, and couldn't find their way back home. Jesus didn't call them enemies. Jesus didn't blame them for the problems that the world was enduring. He saw them as a ship that had lost its true north and was not able to navigate itself back to its home port. And Jesus didn't get angry with lost people because who gets angry with lost things? Do you lose your phone and get angry at your phone? Do, do you lose your keys and get angry at your keys? Do you lose your kid and get angry at your kid? Yeah, well, you get angry at your kid when you lose your kid because usually it's their problem and, and not ours, right, as a parent. They just wandered away, they got away. They, they were supposed to stay still, but they didn't. Jesus didn't get angry at lost people because he saw them wandering away, they lost their way, and they couldn't find their way back home. So he says, I've come. I've come to run down and chase down the people who are lost in order to rescue them and to find them and to bring them back to God. And there was nothing more important to Jesus than that. 
He said, this is my mission, this is my purpose. There's nothing that matters more to me than to coming to this world and seeking and saving those which are lost. And the question is, the question for every church, the question for every Christian is, this still what's most important to us? As a church, is this our greatest passion? Is this our greatest mission? Is this the thing that we are anchored to that we're most excited about and most committed to? That we're like Jesus in the sense that we believe the most important thing is seeking after those which are lost in hopes that God will find them and save them. And that's the question everybody has to wrestle to the ground. That's, that's, that's a question that every church has to answer and hopefully the answer is yes. This is our passion, this is our purpose. There's nothing more important to the Cree church than this right here, to see the lost saved, to see those who are far from God come back to the family of God. Uh, a few years ago, my phone rang in the late night hours, early morning hours, and I'm telling you, when my phone rings at that time of night, that time of morning, no one's ever calling to give me good news. And so I answered the phone, and, and it was some friends of ours, and they were like, we need you to pray, and, and we need some help. And, and they told us about some of our other friends whose son, who was a real outdoorsman, uh, and he'd been out into the woods, and he'd been down near the Rock Castle River, and, and no one had heard from him. He, he didn't come home when he was supposed to come home, and they'd gone out, they found his truck and, and it just seemed like a bad situation. This was something that was really out of character. And so they had, you know, themselves looked around and yelled and they couldn't, you know, find, find him, find signs of him. And so, you know, as a parent, when you lose a child uh, or misplace them, you know, uh, you're like, at first, not a big deal, not a big deal, not a big deal, big deal. And, and it got to the point where it was a big deal. So they were calling friends, they were calling family, they called the authorities. And so they said, we need you to pray and come help. So we got in the car and we went to where everybody was staged and uh, there were men there who brought their foilers and their, you know, their ATVs and there were women there and children there, teenagers there, the rescue squad was there and, and you know, they had their maps and of the whole area and there were some folks who were down there on the river with boats and kind of going up and down the river and, and everybody was just looking uh, for this kid who was lost, for our friend's son who was lost. And, and so they gave us, you know, one side of kind of the mountain and all these trails and, and so there was about a team of like five or six of us and, and we just started going. And, and so we were walking these trails and we would call out his name and then everybody would get really quiet and we would listen. And we would hear nothing. And so we would just keep going and then we would call out his name again a few minutes later and then we would just stop and we would listen. And the only thing that mattered to any of us in that moment was finding that boy who was lost. Nothing else really mattered, the how, the why, or what happened. As long as we could find him and as long as he was gonna be okay, that was the only thing that mattered because I kept thinking, oh my God, what if this were my son? What if this was my kid? I would want people to take this as serious as they would take it if it was their own kid. And so we're out there and we're just walking and we're walking and we're walking and calling out his name and nothing and nothing and nothing. And, and it dawned on me, and I'll never forget it. We were walking and then we stopped and we were listening and I, I just remember thinking, this is how God, feels about us. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And here we are, we're seeking in order to save the lost. And it's the only thing we're thinking about. It's the only thing that matters. There's nothing else on our schedule today that matters as much as this. The good news is he was found. And the good news, he was okay. But here's even better news. How everybody felt that day, 
about the only thing that mattered was to seek and to save that person who was lost is how God felt about you. It's how God feels about you. It's how God feels about me. It's how God feels about the world. It's how God feels about those people out there in the world that drive you crazy. The only thing that matters to him is to seek and to save after those who are lost so they can be found and so they can be saved and rescued and be brought into the family of God. That's how God feels about us. That's how we're supposed to feel about those who are lost. On another occasion, Jesus talking about his purpose. He said something similar, but in a little different way. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. And everybody's, yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. And then he says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And again, Jesus said, this is why I've come. I'm not talking to people who are healthy. I'm not talking to people who think they've got it all together and got life all figured out. I'm not talking about the people who, you know, dot every I and cross every T and think that there's nothing wrong with them. I'm not talking to the people who think they have no problems and they have no issues and they've got no junk in their trunk. I'm not talking to those people. But let me tell you who I am talking to. I've come to talk to people who know they have problems, people who know they have issues, people who know they have struggles, People who understand they are a mess. Sometimes they're a mess on the outside. Sometimes they're a mess on the inside. Sometimes they're a mess everywhere. I've come to talk to people who know they're not good at being good. Because, you know, it seems like there's some people good at being good. I've never felt like one of those people who were good at being good. He says, that's who I'm talking to. Because if you think you're good at being good, I I really, you're not gonna listen to what I have to say, but I'm here to talk to people who aren't good at being good. People who can make a wreck of things. That's who I'm talking to. This is who I'm interested in. This is who I'm giving my time to. And this is what we find happening in the gospels. Jesus's attention was towards those whose lives were a mess. Jesus's attention was towards those whose lives were a mess. Now, messy people didn't bother Jesus but messy people did bother the religious people in Jesus's day. The religious people were so self-righteous, so confident that they were good and everybody else was bad, so confident that they were in and everybody else was out. Messy people bothered the religious people of Jesus's day. The religious establishment had all kinds of rules, all kinds of regulations to ensure that they would be able to keep the messy people at a distance because the messy people were disinvited from the temple, disinvited from the synagogue, disinvited to participate. And so they were kind of ostracized to the margins of life. And so the messy people really bothered the religious people, but the messy people just didn't seem to bother Jesus. Religion in the first century, Jesus's religion, Judaism, which he practiced, seemingly had no room for messes. It's kind of like the church that many of us grew up in. And somewhere along the way, we got the message. Now they didn't say it outright, but we kind of of got the gist that the the idea was, if this church, if you're a mess, you're not really welcome here. If your life's a wreck, mm, I don't know, we're not your people. Uh, You got people on the outside. If you're a mess, if your life's a wreck, if you're into this or if you're into that, if you like to do this, if you do this on Friday, if you do this on Saturday, if if you're into that and into her and into him, you know, we're not your people because we're not into mess. And so that was kind of the message that we heard. And so the message seemingly was one of, hey, if you wanna be part of us, just go get cleaned up and then come back and be one of us. 
But until you get cleaned up, you're really not one of us and you can't be one of us. So just go do something else until you do that. And so you had, you know, you only had a couple of choices. You either, you know, dropped out like a lot of people or like a lot of other people, you just pretended that you didn't have a mess anymore. And so what you would do is you would kind of do what you do when company's coming over. You don't clean when company's coming over. You just hide your mess. And then what we do? Because cleaning requires way too much of a commitment, way too much time. It's so much easier just to take the mess that we know that the company's gonna be in and we're just gonna throw it all in the room that we know they're not gonna be in. And so we just transport our mess into a place that they can't see it because there's something in us. We're afraid of how people will feel about us. We're afraid of how people will think about us if they encounter our mess, if they see how messy we are. And so we clean up the areas they're gonna be at and then we hide our mess. We're still messy, we, we just hide it. And then they walk in and they're, oh my God, the house is so clean. Yes, we keep it like this all the time. <laughs> we can't stand a mess around here, it just drives us crazy. And that's what people have done when they go to church. That's how a lot of people were trained. Hey, we don't talk about that at church. Don't tell anybody about that at church. Don't let anybody in that room at church. Just hide your mess, you know, put on, you know, put on a suit or put on your best Levi's, put on your best boots, you know, grab the biggest King James Version 1611 Bible that you can carry without knocking your back out of alignment and you go to church with your family and you walk in those doors and you act like everything is peachy. And sons and daughters watch mom and dad put on a smile, put on a show, shake everybody's hands. How's it going, brother? Oh, it's going good, brother. How's it going with you? Oh, brother, it's going great. And little, little sis and little bro there, they're sitting there thinking, our family is going to hell in a handbasket, but here, it seems like everything's just a-okay. And everybody learns early, hide your mess, hide your mess, hide your mess, hide your mess. But here's the thing, that's not how people felt when they were around Jesus. They didn't feel like they had to hide their mess. I don't think that's how people should feel about the church. I think if that's not how they felt about Jesus, I don't think that's how they should feel about us. And it shouldn't surprise us that then Jesus became known as the friend to sinners. This is what his enemies said about him. It says that here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He eats too much and he drinks too much. And he's a friend of sinners. Now, one of those two, eating too much and drinking too much, one of those tells us that he wasn't a Baptist. The other could go either way, right? It's like, I don't know, I'm not sure. But I'll tell you about the people he's been hanging out with. I'll tell you, I think he's eating too much, I think he's drinking too much. I think he's picked up some of those bad habits. I think he's got soft on sin. I think he's a compromiser. I don't think he's standing up for what's right. I don't think he's taking a stand. Matter of fact, looks like he's just sitting down drinking and eating most of the time to me. I tell you what we need, we need a, we need a Masada. Make a stand, bless God. Stand up, speak up. Oh, he's, he's a liberal. I mean, look at him. I mean, obviously, friend of sinners, I mean, you can't be much of a man of God if you're gonna be friend of sinners like that. And that's hanging out with sinners, hanging out with the lost. It cost him some of his reputation with some of his religious peers, but he didn't care. He wasn't afraid of guilt by association. He wasn't afraid of that. You know what he decided? I'm gonna be your friend. 
You know what a friend is? Of course you do. Friend, someone who says, I'm in your corner. I'm gonna be in your corner no matter what. Friend is somebody who says, I got your back. I got your back if nobody else has your back, I got your back. And when people talk about you, I'm, I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna defend, I'm your friend, I'm, I've got your back, I'm in your corner, I'm loyal. You know what a friend is? A friend is somebody that doesn't get embarrassed by you. You, you. A friend is somebody you can be yourself around. You can kind of just lay out your mess because you're not afraid of how they think about it. You're not afraid that they're gonna change how they treat you. It's just like, I'm your friend. A friend is somebody who doesn't take cheap shots at you. They don't insult you. A friend doesn't insult you. They don't make you the butt of the joke and humiliate you in front of people. A friend is somebody who's gonna be honest with you, but gracious to you at the same time. A friend is somebody you don't feel the pressure to pretend, to pretend to be something you're not or somebody you're not. When the loss got around Jesus, when the messy got around Jesus, when people far from God got around Jesus, they felt safe. They felt safe. They knew he was gonna be honest with them, but yet they knew that he was gonna be gracious with them. They knew that Jesus didn't live the same way that they lived and they knew that Jesus didn't really even see the world the same way they did, but, but they knew they were loved and they knew they were respected and they knew that he looked at them as individuals with dignity. And so they felt honest to talk to him without judgment or condemnation because he saw them differently. I mean, the scriptures, it tells us that he saw them. He says, when he saw them, he saw them as helpless and hopeless, as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as sheep being sheep. That when sheep get left to themselves, they often become the victim of their own appetite and their own habits. So he saw them different. He didn't see them like the religious people saw them. He didn't feel about them the way that the self-righteous felt about them. It says that he had compassion on them. Their lifestyle, the way they were hurting themselves and hurting others, their choices, their decisions, it broke his heart. Didn't make him angry, he wasn't ticked. It just, it broke his heart and he had compassion on him because he understood. He was tempted in all points, even as we are, but yet he was without sin, but he understood. So he knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to walk through the temptation. He knows what it's like to have the struggle. He knows what that's like. And he had compassion. They weren't afraid of him. They weren't afraid if they got close to Jesus, the sky was gonna fall. Or that they were just gonna, you know, spontaneously combust. They felt worth when they were around Jesus. They felt respected, they felt loved. And when we see Jesus' interaction with sinners and the lost and those who are far from God and those who are sick and in need of a doctor, we learn something, that God's heart, it leans towards the lost. God's heart leans towards the lost. Does ours. Does yours. To say it another way, God's heart, it leans towards those whose lives are a mess. No wonder we read. So, so often when Jesus was teaching, it was the tax collectors and the sinners who wanted to sit up close and listen to Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't know, I, I know some of you, I, I don't, you know, maybe tax collectors and sinners are occupying up here this morning. But 
I know in a lot of churches that I grew up in and, and encountered earlier in my life, it's like, you know, there was just a lot of people who just thought, no, I mean, I, I don't even guess I go to church. I don't even think I should listen. I'm, I'm kind of not, that's not my people and I'm not good at it. And, you know, if I go, I'm trying to be something I'm not. And there was all that kind of thought. And, but the, the worst of the worst wanted to be right up close to hear what Jesus said. And one day Jesus looks up and he looks into the crowd and he, he sees lostness. He sees a bunch of people who can't find their way back home. He, he sees people far from God. And so he gives an invitation, an invitation that would be an alternative to religion. It would be an alternative way to think of God and to see God. And so he looks out at the mess and he speaks words that the world has never gotten over. And he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Listen to who he's talking to, the weary and the burden. Those of you who feel crushed and bruised and beat up by religion. Listen to me, I'm talking to you. He's not talking to people who've got it all together. He's not talking to the strong, not talking to the rule keeper. He says, those of you who are weary and burdened, those of you who feel crushed under the weight of religion, you feel bruised and disappointed by religion. You've been chewed up and spit out by religion. You've been told by religious people that God has no interest in you, that God doesn't love you, that God could never accept you, that God doesn't have a place at his table or in his family for people like you. I'm talking to you, Jesus would say. For those of you who go around and you feel like a perpetual failure because you just, you just can't keep all those rules. I mean, they had 613 commandments to keep. I mean, bless God, I, we struggle with 10. Give us 603 more, are you kidding me? And they're walking around and they, they always feel like I'm, sh I'm coming short, I'm coming short, I'm not good at this. Uh, and, and they're frustrated and they're exhausted and they're tired of pretending to be better than what they are because if they let everybody know how they really are, then they're not gonna be welcome anymore. So they're always pretending and they're always keeping secrets and they're always hiding the mess in the room where the company's not gonna be. They're always playing games with God, trying to get God on their side, trying to get God to bless them and give them favor. They screw up on Friday night. So what do they do on Saturday? Okay, I'm just gonna be really good today. And, and I'll tell you where I'm gonna be at on Sunday morning. I'm gonna be on the front row Sunday morning at church because Friday night, whoo, didn't mean that for that to happen, but it happened and I, I'm gonna be at the church and I'm gonna get there early. I'm gonna get there early. God, that's how much I love you. I'm gonna get there early. All right, some of those sinners that don't get there until 18 minutes into the service, but I'll tell you, I'm a sinner, but I'll be there early. And I, I get there and it's like, hey God, God, did you see? me? You see me? I'm here. I'm here. I, I'm, I'm making up for all of that. And, and we play these games with God. God, would you please, I promise, I promise, I promise, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. Just, just don't smoke me. Don't, don't smoke my family. Don't take away my job. Don't take away my money. Don't give anybody cancer. God, I, I just pray I'll never, never do it again. He said, are you tired of all of that? Playing those games. Trying to figure out what do I wear? What do I, what do I eat? What do I drink? All, all that stuff. He says, are you tired of the uncertainty about where you and God stand with each other? Am I in, am I out? Am I on the list or am I off the list? He says, are you just tired of that kind of stuff? He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened by all of that stuff, and I will give you rest. Here's a word. If following Jesus doesn't feel like rest, 
we aren't doing it right. Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest. He's not inviting us to keep rules or observe rituals or protect traditions. He's inviting us to himself. He's inviting us to a relationship. He's inviting us to grace that gives us freedom. He's, he's inviting us to a love that abolishes fear. Truth that brings us hope. And he says, take my yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke was another way of saying law. Jesus, take my law, take my teaching upon you. And Jesus took all 613 commandments that the Jewish people had laid on the backs of the Jewish people. And he says, I'm gonna give you one. And it's a new commandment. I want you to go love each other the way that I love you, the way that I'm gonna prove my love for you, the way I'm gonna demonstrate my love for you when I give my life for you. I want you to love one another the way that I have loved you because here's the thing, if you, if you love other people the way that I am prepared to love you, you don't have to memorize all the other stuff. All the other stuff will fall into place. So learn from me, learn how to love from me. Watch how I am. Pay attention to how I talk about these people how I talk to groups, listen to my tone, listen to my ideas, watch my interactions, learn from me because I am gentle. I'm not abrasive, I'm not a jerk. I'm not a self-righteous prude. I'm not passive aggressive with my self-righteousness. I'm gentle. I'm gentle and I'm humble. I'm not looking down on you, I am looking at you eye to eye. I'm in it with you. So learn from me, for my yoke, it is easy, and my burden is light. What I'm gonna give you is not a burden. What I'm gonna give you, it's not heavy. It's not exhausting. It's not uncertain. It's better. Doesn't that sound better than just try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder. God, I promise I'm gonna try harder. God, I promise I'm gonna try harder. Oh my Lord. I wonder if he just ever says, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Have you not listened to anything? Does that not sound better than work harder, work harder, be holier, be holier, be holier, be holier. Am I holier today than I was yesterday? Am I more righteous today? Did I get more right today than I got yesterday? You know, am I clean? Am I really clean? Am I spotless today? I don't know. Doesn't it feel better than getting caught up in those guilt shame cycles? It's like, okay, God, I'm gonna do better. And then you try to do better and don't. Then you feel guilty and shameful because you didn't. And then you kind of feel like you need to recommit and you do, God, I'm gonna do better, but then you don't. And it's just like, oh my gosh, it just doesn't stop. He says, would you come to me? It doesn't have to be that way. I'm not inviting you to that kind of system. I'm not inviting you to that kind of life. I'm inviting you to rest, to rest your soul so that you know me and you are good, that you know you are loved, you are received, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who I am and what I am doing for you. Rest in that. And that was Jesus' invitation to the people that religion had chewed up and spit out come to me. And all through the gospels, we find a Jesus who is moving towards people's mess. And then he looks at them and says, come to me. I've shortened the distance. Just, just turn to me and give up this other way of doing it because it's, it's killing you and it's extinguishing your faith. Jesus moved towards the mess so he could get in the mess with us. We find it happening with a leper in Matthew chapter eight. And lepers were unclean by Jewish law. 
They weren't allowed to come near people. They weren't allowed to come to the temple. They weren't allowed to be around religious leaders. But we find this leper, when he sees Jesus coming, he felt the freedom to run towards him. A man who was caught in a system that said, stay away, stay away, stay away. A man who had been raised in a system that says, you're not welcome here, you're not welcome here, you're not welcome here. You're unclean, you're unholy, you're unloved. Stay away, but when Jesus came, there was something about Jesus. He felt the freedom and he ran to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus reaches into this man's life who had been forgotten and neglected and shunned, who had been disinvited. And he does the unthinkable. And Jesus ran the risk of being called unclean himself because to touch a leper was to be called unclean. You would be made unclean by touching a leper, but Jesus risked being called unclean so that this man would not feel unloved. There was a centurion servant, same chapter, a Roman soldier part of the Roman Empire, part of the occupying oppressor. A man that when Jewish people would see him, they would think to themselves, this is the problem. This, this is the cause of our problem in our country. Our country would be so much better. Our world would be so much better. My life would be so much better. There'd be less suffering, less death if it weren't for people like you. If we could just cleanse our land from people like you, we would all be better. And this centurion, this Roman, comes to Jesus and says, my servant, he's sick and I'm afraid he's gonna die. And Jesus said, what, you want me to come to your house and heal him? And he said, no, no, oh no. I'm not even worthy for you to step into my house, but Jesus, if you would just say the word out loud, I believe that he would be healed. And Jesus takes a step back and he looks at the people that day in the crowd and he says, I have not found faith like this, not in all of the house of Israel. And he said, one day they will come from the north and the south and the east and the west. And people like this man will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And everybody who heard Jesus knew exactly what he meant and it was nothing short of revolutionary that a Gentile, a Roman, a Gentile dog who was outside of this covenant of promise that God had made with Israel. This Gentile that was not allowed to be around Jewish people. Jesus said, look for him one day in the kingdom of God. And it took everyone's breath away. There was tax collectors, the scum of the earth, traitors, disowned by family, faith, and their nation. The rabbis taught there's no hope for these people. They're definitely hellbound in our vernacular. If anybody's going to hell, tax collectors are going to hell. You don't touch them, you don't talk to them. And if you do make a promise to them, you don't even have to keep it because they're less than human. They've sided with the Romans. They're part of the problem. And because they didn't measure up to the norms of culture and community, they were ostracized to the margins. Jesus walks up to one day a tax collector by the name of Matthew in front of everybody. Knowing how everybody felt about him, he looked at him and says, follow me. 
And I imagine Matthew thought to himself, me? Do you know me? Do you know what I do? Do you know who I am? And Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew followed Jesus. One day there was a woman at a well. There's a story after story. Jesus, the friend of sinners, seeking and saving the lost. One day Jesus is going to Galilee and he looks at his, he looks at his guys and says, hey, I want to go through Samaria. And they're like, uh, I think you misspoke, Jesus, because good Jews don't go through Samaria. We hate those people, remember? And he's like, no, we're going through Samaria. There was a long history of prejudice and hatred between the Jewish people and the Samaritans that went back hundreds of years. If you were a Jewish person and you, you were unclean, if you even touched something that a Samaritan had touched. But here's Jesus seeking and saving the lost, moving towards a mess. He goes to a well at high noon. At this well, there's a woman. She's not supposed to be there. She should have been there earlier that morning in the cool of the day, but because of her story and because of her history and because of her lifestyle, she, she avoids the crowd. She's tired of the whispers and the judgment and the condemnation. So she goes there so she can be alone. And Jesus breaks all the rules and he talks to her. Jewish men didn't talk to women, especially Samaritan women. And he said, would you get me a drink of water? And she goes, you don't even have a cup. You don't even have a bucket. Where, where are you gonna drink from? And he said, I'll use yours. You're willing to drink from my cup? Sure, can I have a drink of water? And she's never had anybody talk to her this way before. She's never had anybody look at her this way before. She's never felt such dignity and respect in years. And they begin to talk and Jesus says, would you like to have water? Water that will satisfy every longing of your soul. Water that if you drink, you'll never be thirsty again. Would you like to have water like that? And she goes, oh, I'd love to have water like that. He said, well, go get your husband and bring him back. She goes, oh, I don't have a husband. He said, that's right. You've had five of them and the one you're with now is not your husband. And Jesus reaches into the most painful, shameful part of her life. And she goes, how in the world did you know this? I've heard that the Christ is on his way. And Jesus looks at her and says, I am he. And she runs back to the village saying, come meet a man who told me everything about me, who knew everything about me, but loved me anyway. We're a woman caught in the act of adultery and they throw her down at the feet of Jesus and everybody's got a stone. And they said, Jesus, should we stone her? That's what the law of Moses says. And Jesus said, I think, you know, the person among you without sin should cast the first stone. And the irony was there was only one person in that crowd that day without sin and he was the only one without a stone and that was Jesus. And eventually they all throw down their stones and they walk away and Jesus looks at that woman who's embarrassed and shaken to her core and fearful of her life, been exploited in this moment to make a religious point. And he says, where are your accusers? She said, no man, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. So just go and sin no more. Or this last one, a thief on the cross who looks over at Jesus, who's 
suffering the sentence of the crime that he committed. He's received the death penalty just like Jesus. And he looks over at Jesus after the other thief on the other side had kind of been mocking and poking, trying to solicit a response out of Jesus of some sort. But he looks at Jesus and he says, would you just remember me when you come into your kingdom? And without a chance to make it right, without a chance to rededicate his life and go do good deeds, Jesus looks at him and says, today, you are gonna be with me in paradise. There he is, friend to sinners. There he is, seeking in order to save that which was lost. And we see it over and over again. He touched the untouchables. He loved the unlovables. He redeemed the irredeemable. He gave access to those who were excommunicated. He gave hope to the hopeless. And Matthew, this is where we'll end it today and this is where we'll pick it up next week. Matthew, he looks back on that invitation of come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden and it made him think of something. And he jotted down a verse, a scripture out of the, book of Isaiah that reminded him of Jesus. And he said, this was to fulfill what, the, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, speaking of Jesus, whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. That's not the revolution that he's bringing. He doesn't do it through quarreling or crying out. No one will hear his voice. This is a silent revolution of love and grace and truth. And Matthew says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he's brought justice through to victory. Reeds were long, tall grass that they would use as pens or use as flutes. And once they were bruised or bent, they were useless and they were thrown away. Everybody knows what a smoking candle is and the wax and the wick all gets real kind of meshed together and all of a sudden there's really no flame. It's just a flicker, but a whole lot of smoke and it's annoying and it, and that's usually the time when people say, blow that candle out. But Isaiah <laughs> predicting what the Messiah would be like and Matthew knowing what the Messiah was like, Matthew said, I've watched him and bruised reed after bruised reed after bruised reed, he has encountered and he's never once discarded one. Smoky candles, not once did he ever extinguish it, but he believed that there was something to redeem. God does not reject the broken and neither should we. As a church, God willing, we won't because this is a place for doubters, for skeptics, for cynics, for those who are bruised and beaten for those who are suspicious, for those who are a mess, for those who've wandered away and lost their way and they can't find their way back home. This is a place for people who vehemently disagree with you that you vehemently disagree with. This is a place where sinners can walk through the door, where people lost walk through the door, far from God walk through the door and they say, you know what? Those are my friends. 
They love me. They speak, to, they speak truth to me there, but they do it with grace and they respect me and they look at me with dignity. Jesus was a friend to sinners and his church should be too because broods read, bruise reads and smoking flags, he does not discard. God does not reject the broken. God redeems the broken. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If anybody's here who's never trusted you as Savior, I pray that in this moment, they'll place their faith in you. Not religion, not a system, but in you. That you died for their sins, you were buried and raised from the dead. And if you never placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you to just pray a simple prayer. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I believe that he was buried. I believe that he was indeed raised from the dead. And today, I place my faith in what Jesus did for me. It's not who I am and it's not what I've done. It's who he is and what he did for me that makes the difference. So today, I receive your gift of grace. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are still closed. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, here's my question. Do you feel about those far from God the way Jesus felt about those people who were far from God? Is that the way you see them? Is that the way you feel about them? Is that the way that you talk about them? Is your greatest passion to seek and to save the lost? Is your greatest passion to be a friend to sinners, even if it costs your reputation? being misunderstood or misrepresented. Father, I pray we get this right. Let us get this right. May your grace be at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.